Father, thank you for promising to send us the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. We're asking that you would pour out your Spirit with power in our hearts. That our eyes would be lifted up to see you more clearly. But not just in this time, Father. That we would continually have our hearts set on you in such a way that we would reflect you brightly to the world around us. Father, would you give us understanding today as we dive into Daniel chapter 11. We need you. We need your Holy Spirit. Please guide us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I wanted to ask you a question. What enables a dictator to overcome a country, to, to take over a country? What, what causes a democracy to take on a dictator? What, what causes a nation to embrace a man who, who rules with an iron fist? Any ideas? Things that you think might, might create that? Fear. Yeah, that's a big one. People afraid. Maybe afraid of what's going on in the world around them. Anything else? Hardship, power, yeah, lack of hope, yeah, lots of these different things. Well, I actually looked up on the uh, United States Holocaust Museum about how it was that Hitler came to power and what were the dynamics going on in Germany at the time when he rose to power. And they said this, he promised to create, he and the Nazi party promised to create a strong Germany to fix the economy and put people back to work, to return Germany to the status of a great European and even world power, to regain territory Germany had lost in World War I, create a strong authoritarian German government, and unite all Germans along racial and ethnic lines. Behind this, you see that there was some problems in Germany. Things weren't going the way that Germany wanted them to be going. And so it enabled for somebody to step in like Hitler and to say, I'm going to fix this for you. I'm the Savior. You can follow me. And you find youth marching in the streets saying, Hail Hitler and and whatever else. they I don't know what they're saying. But they're saying these things following this guy who promised so much to them. What is it that enables somebody to create a following like that? You know, it's interesting that oftentimes some of the most evil men came into power because they looked like a savior. And we're going to find that as we look through Daniel chapter 11, I invite you to open your Bible to Daniel chapter 11. Uh, the, like we talked about last week, one of the most complex chapters in all of the Bible. Um, it's very, very complex. There's a lot of historical detail, a lot of things here that are, are neat to study out when you compare it to the history book. So I invite you to do that uh, in your own free time to look at it more. If you'd like to sit down, I'd love to talk with you more about it. But we looked at last, last week, the very center verse. You remember what verse was the center verse? 22. Good job. Right? And what, what, what do we find in verse 22? Let's look at it again. We found this. With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken. This is talking about a dictator, a tyrant, Augustus Caesar, who was taking over the known world and creating this larger and larger Roman Empire. And then in the midst of this, at the end, it tells us what this prophecy really is designed to point us to. And also the prince of the covenant. The prince of the covenant would be broken. Jesus would be broken in the midst of this 
chaos and strife. Amongst the thousands and thousands of crosses that Romans erected, one of them had God himself on that cross willingly laying down his life for you and me. And that is powerful. We saw last week that Napoleon said, you know what I established and Charlemagne and these other guys established a kingdom based upon force. But Jesus... He established a kingdom that today millions would lay down their life for him, and he established it based upon love. An entirely different principle. And then we saw after this that, that suddenly we're finding rage against the covenant. We're finding the covenant coming up again and again and again in Daniel chapter 11. But let's, let's just remind ourselves as we go through of what the, 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 the thumbnail sketch is of this chapter. So Daniel chapter 2 gives us the picture of Nations that would come after Babylon. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Europe. And we find that Daniel chapter 7 and then Daniel chapter 8, although Daniel chapter 8 starts with Persia rather than with Babylon, they go through this swath of human history that now we find repeated. It's a repeat and enlarged. So when you come to Daniel chapter 11, if you get confused with all the details, you can remember the big picture is Persia, Greece, Rome, the Holy Roman Empire are being described here just like they were in the other prophecies. This helps me a lot. And you don't have to stick to these verses. You know, there's a little bit of debate about exact transitions here, but you can see some real clear indications as you go through here of the transfer of power from nation to nation. Um, we saw what we see here that we, we didn't begin to look at is once you get past Rome, you get past the, the, the secular Roman power. We've talked a little bit about how transition was given over to the church. And the church was now establishing kings and taking down kings. This is what was called the Holy Roman Empire or the Roman Catholic Church. So in 1131, we see a picture of this that will remind us of Daniel chapter 8. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. What's being defiled? The sanctuary fortress. This is a a picture of the sanctuary is being defiled. Then they shall take away the what? The daily. Do you remember when we talked about the daily? Back in Daniel chapter 8, we looked at how uh, we have a priest with us continually. This daily ministry of Christ was taken away by priests who said you had to come and confess to them, who only they could bring you the, bread, the, the, the blood and the, the body of Christ. And you had to have the Eucharist in order to experience salvation. This, this intermediary between you and God, keeping you back from God, making distance from you and God. So here you have this picture again repeated in Daniel 11. They take away the daily and Place there the abomination of desolation. Jesus, when he left the temple, he said, I'm leaving your house unto you desolate. Jesus has no part of this system of worship. And it's super important that we realize that that not everything with the name Christianity on it represents who Jesus is. It's really important that we grasp that. That that not everything with the name Christian on it represents Jesus. Verse 32, we saw last week, those who do wickedly against the covenant... He will corrupt with flattery. He's, he's going to pull in more and more people who are against this covenant. We saw the covenant as God's promise made and promise kept in Jesus. And then we, we, we focus especially on this last week. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And thank you, Matt, for sharing last week about how this church family, through knowing God, I, I really enjoyed the, the message last week. If you missed it, it's on YouTube 
Nothing compares of how God is working to display His glory through a group of people like you, through Matt and his family, through knowing who God is. They will be strong. If you want to be strong in the end, it's not about knowing all the details about how to navigate things. It's about knowing Jesus. And the things He reveals to us can help. But the most important thing is knowing His character. Recognizing Him revealed and cover to cover in this book. Verse 33 then continues and it says, And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. So, so talking about this group who really knows who God is, who, who recognize the character of God as revealed in Jesus, they'll instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. It's like, wait, time out. <laughs> I just thought you said if you know your God, you're going to be strong and do great exploits. Why are they given to sword? Why are they given to flame? Why captivity? Why, why plundering? This is the, the history of God's people throughout the dark ages as those who would stand for the right, who would say, no, we, we want to translate the Bible, would be burned at the stake. There's the Inquisition, this, this bloody history where millions and millions of people were persecuted and killed for simply wanting to do what's right. And it was all done in the name of Jesus. It was done with a cross. You have the crusades where people are marching into to different countries, including attacking Islam and, and destroying people in the name of Jesus. So this is a picture in these verses uh, starting in about 29 or 30 of the dark ages of Christian history. And you see this again in verse 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. And notice this. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god and shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall prosper. This is going back to Daniel chapter 8 with this little horn power who's speaking blasphemies against the Most High. And Daniel chapter 7 also. It's giving us this picture that, that this is a heavenward attack But how does the enemy best attack heavenward? Sometimes we picture the Antichrist as being this this power that looks really, really evil and who's saying, God is is a terrible and you need to stop believing in Jesus. But that's not the picture in the Bible. What's the picture? Let's go to 2 Thessalonians, which notice the very similar language here. This this. Um, power is exalting and magnifying himself above every God, speaking blasphemies against the God of gods. Notice 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, being the second coming when Jesus comes back, will not come unless the falling away comes first, unless people within the church begin to walk away from the truth. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You see, the the greatest possible thing that Satan can do to get our hearts is to mischaracterize Christianity following Jesus, to mischaracterize God's character itself. I mean, you think about it. If, 
If you are a church-going Christian who loves Jesus, are you tempted to walk into a seance and to worship the devil? Are you tempted when, when you see all the craziness and the filth and the, the, the immorality in the world around you, these things, they appall us. But Jesus said that there would be many false Christs and many false prophets. If possible, even the very elect would be deceived. What is it that deceives the very elect? It's when somebody shows up in the name of Jesus. It's when somebody shows up and says they're doing it for the cross. They're doing it for righteousness. But in reality, they're wolves in sheep's clothing, to use another phrase from from the New Testament. So we have in the Bible here this picture of what the king of the north is like. That's the phraseology in Daniel 11. It says there's the king of the north and the king of the south. And I should have put a map up here, but, but just picture this. If you had a map of the Mediterranean, there's, there's the coast of the Mediterranean, and Israel is right in the middle between the path that Babylon would have to take coming from the east and then going around, it would have to go around the desert, come down from the north, through Israel to get to Egypt if it wanted to go to the south. So the king of the north is pictured as Assyria, it's pictured as Babylon, it's pictured as these powers from the north. And then there's the king of the south, which early in the chapter refers to Egypt and to specifically the pharaohs. And there's some fascinating information. You'll even find like Cleopatra in Daniel chapter 11. You find details about different pharaohs in Daniel chapter 11. It's fascinating stuff that is here that was predicted in Daniel chapter 11. But then you see what's happened here with the king of the north. Babylon has taken on no longer a regional geographical place, but now it is, it's actually a spiritual uh, power that is, is working to attack God's throne and to establish itself in God's temple. Is this making sense? So when we look at the king of the north as we get to the latter part of the chapter, we're seeing he's not operating in the same geographical sense. He's now operating on a spiritual and, and larger, even larger scale. Because think about it like this. Which is more powerful? Uh, the, the one who has a massive army or the one who can tell the general and the king of that army that, hey, I'll condemn you to hell forever and ever. You'll burn forever and ever if you don't get your army to fight for me. If somebody actually believes in what this guy is saying, he has far more power. He doesn't need an army. All he's got to do is harness falsehood and, and threatening, and, and he suddenly has all types of control. So we see this back and forth in Daniel chapter 11, the king of the north and the king of the south. It's called that because God's people, where are they? They're right in the middle. They're caught in the middle between these two tyrants, the king of the south and the king of the north, and they're warring back and forth, and God's people are stuck in the middle of it. Do you ever feel like that? You watch the news, and you're like, oh man, they're crazy, and they're crazy, and, and where's Bible-based society today. <laughs> well, how do I find my way in the midst of, of the crazies on either side? The king of the north versus the king of the south. But notice, verse 40 gives us a clear indicator of where we are in history. It says, at the time of the, the end. When, when we get to, to things finally wrapping up, which if you look uh, at at this in, in clarity, we saw the 1260-year prophecy lasted until 1798. And that's the time frame that you find this taking place. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. We have the French 
revolution that took place, and you have suddenly the, um, the, the power that had, had held sway through Christianity is suddenly dethroned. The Pope is, is taken away from his seat, and no longer does the church have the authority because of this power that comes in. In fact, let's look a little bit more at what this King of the South is all about. Um, King of the South is usually referred to as Egypt in the Bible. The Great Controversy, page 269, describes it this way. Of all nations presented in Bible history, Egypt most boldly denied the existence of the living God and resisted his commands. No monarch ever ventured upon more open and high-handed rebellion against the authority of heaven than did the king of Egypt. You remember in Exodus chapter 5? Remember when Moses came and he said, Yahweh has said, set my people free? And Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? His voice to let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. This, this bold uncare, uh, this, this bold ability to, to not even care who God is. I don't care who, the, who your God is. I don't know him. What's he going to do to me? Angel Rodriguez, uh, in his paper, I encourage you to check it out. You can find it online. Daniel 11 in the Islam interpretation says this, while the king of the north is interested in Yahweh and in occupying his place, usurping his role, the king of the south simply does not care. Does that describe the world today? I mean, if, when you go and you try to share with somebody about Jesus, there's a, a, a whole lot of apathy, a whole lot of, I don't care about your God. When you look at society and you see what's going on and you, you think, oh man, why? Why is society going the direction away from God that it is? I thought our nation needed to be founded on these principles and, and here we are going this direction and it gets so frustrating for us to say, Why don't they care about God anymore? What's going on here? The king of the south simply does not care. Then he goes on to say, Egypt represents the nations of the earth that do not take the Lord into consideration. Today, we would probably refer to them as non-Christian societies and nations where secularism or atheism prevails. All right, so... So think in your mind when you think king of the south, this is my understanding of it, that this, is, this represents atheism, this represents secularism, this represents um, all of the non-Christian societies on the planet. This can represent Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism. This represents anybody who does not recognize who Jesus is. So this is, this is what we get with the king of the south. Let's keep going. We see at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Can you see how... This is still happening in society today. I mean, when we get to an election, sometimes we're beginning to ponder things in our mind of like, hey, how do we fix society's problems? And, and really, it's this problem with, with, as Christians, we tend to look at secularism and atheism and, and all of these other isms that are creating problems for us. The king of the south comes and attacks the king of the north. But then watch what happens. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through them. Or the wording there is, he overwhelms them like a flood. He comes through like a flood. This tells us that the king of the south, he's going to have his day. But he's got no chance because the king of the north is going to come and overflow him. And he will have no chance to continue what he's doing. 
Then it goes on to say, he shall also enter the glorious land. He's on his way to the south. He's going to overflow the south, and he goes through the glorious land. And many will be overthrown. On his way to the south to destroy the south, many within the glorious land begin to fall. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Then verse 42, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. This king of the south, does that give you any hope today? Does that give you any courage today to know that, you know what, the, the current condition of society is not going to go on the way that it is? Maybe there's some, a, a little bit of, of hope in that because we tend to be very worried. We're coming to a holiday where we get worried about why does it look so evil? Why is, why is this going on? The king of the north is going to come and overflow and to overcome the king of the south. Now, there's a fascinating thing with the language here that's pointed out by Angel Rodriguez from the, the Adventist Biblical Research Institute. And he points out that this story here, verses 40 to 45, it clearly uses language throughout this to tell us something that that will help us to understand what's going on here. And we're going to look to the book of Exodus to see what's going on here. First of all, it's going to tell us about the land of Egypt. I believe that's verse 42. The land of Egypt. This is a term that is used most frequently in the book of Exodus. Repeatedly used in the book of Exodus. Most frequently in the book of Exodus. Then it tells us that that the king of the north is going to stretch out his hand towards the king of the south. We find in Exodus that God says he's going to stretch out his hand towards Egypt and strike Egypt. There's the language of water. Do you remember in the story of Exodus how much water is involved? Especially God uses water to defeat the Egyptian army in the end. And we just saw that, that, that the king of the north comes like a flood to overflow all of the king of the south and, and the other countries. Notice also that we read about chariots and horsemen. You remember the story of the exodus, the, the involvement of chariots and horsemen in that story? How they were the ones going into the Red Sea? What about Edom, Moab, and Ammon? When you read that and you say they're spared, what does that have to do with anything? You remember when they were leaving and going into the wilderness and when they're going towards the promised land, they're told to spare three nations and three nations only. What nations were those? Edom, Moab, and Ammon were spared. These are the nations that, that were not a part of their uh, conquests after leaving the land of Egypt. And then it tells us that when they came out, they came out with silver and gold. They plundered Egypt by saying, hey, give us your silver, give us your gold. And it says silver, gold, and precious thing, the books of Exodus tells us. They brought all of that out with them out of the land of Egypt. And they go, after leaving, they go to the holy mountain. They go to Mount Sinai, which in Daniel chapter 11, when it's talking about the holy mountain. It's likely referring to Mount Zion, which is where Jerusalem is. But they're going to a, the holy mountain of God after coming out of the land of Egypt. And they go out to exterminate uh, the inhabitants of Canaan, although that wasn't the first command to them. 
or wasn't the first promise of God, but eventually they're told to annihilate everybody in the land of Canaan. So you see all these parallels to the Exodus? It's pretty fascinating to look at. Why all of these similarities there? Daniel, as he's receiving this, would have had this tie to that story. You remember when Daniel's praying in Daniel chapter 9, the one story that he references about the covenant-keeping God is you're the one who rescued us from Egypt. And throughout the Psalms and, and throughout the prophets, again and again, God's salvific act that they were celebrating, they were looking back to, was how he took us from slavery in Egypt and he rescued us out of bondage and he set us free. He is our Savior. And now do you see what's happening? This king of the north power who we see persecuting God's people earlier on with a sword, with, with all of these different methods of persecution, this power is now turning its attention towards the king of the south, non-Christian societies, atheism, secularism. And it's going to be a savior. It's going to, to rescue the planet from this problem that's going on. And, and I can't tell you how frequently I hear about how we need to be rescued from communism, from Marxism, from the global elites. From, I get emails about it quite frequently with the, another, another YouTube video to watch about it. There's, there's a lot of concern about what's going on in the world today. And this tells us that, that somebody is going to step up and going to say, I am the Savior. I am the solution to the godlessness, to the secularism, to the atheism, to the King of the South solution. Can you see how clear this is? The King of the South, representing Egypt, is going to be attacked by the King of the North in a fashion where the King of the North is mimicking God himself, going down to Egypt to rescue the people who are enslaved. This is the picture of Daniel chapter 11. The king of the north wants the role of a savior for Christianity. When we hear the term antichrist, it means somebody who steps into the place of Christ. Who looks like, who, who appears in our perception as if he's representing Christ. And that is dangerous for the church of God. Because <laughs> we're wanting to follow somebody like that. We're willing to follow somebody that's pushing for the things that we think are right. But what if they're not using Jesus' methods? Do you remember what happened when Pilate brings two out to be looked at by the crowd and there's Barabbas and there's Jesus? That crowd is looking for a Messiah. And Jesus... He's willingly laying down his life by loving everybody around him, by healing, by doing everything to feed people, to teach people. Barabbas is a murderer. Barabbas is an insurrectionist. He's going to fight the Romans. And which do they choose? Let's let the one go who's going to establish morality for the Jewish nation. Let's get the one who's going to fight. And how often I hear Christians saying, you know what, the election's coming up. We've got to vote no matter what the person is like, so long as he will rescue this nation from godlessness. And that is a dangerous trap because the king of the north appears in the form of Christianity itself. 
This doesn't mean that we should not vote according to Christian morals. We absolutely should. This doesn't mean that I should not vote for Christians. Obviously, I hope that Christianity becomes more and more in favor in this country in a good way with true Christianity, with God's character being revealed. The Great Controversy tells us this. You remember when it talks, well, we'll get into that in a second. In these churches, which he can bring under his deception, talking about Satan, power, he will make it appear that God's special blessing is poured out. There will be manifest what is thought to be great religious interest. There will be this, this great religious interest going on among the Protestant churches. Multitudes will exalt that God is working marvelously for them when the work is that of another spirit under a, what is it? A, under a communist, guys? Under a secular, guys? Under a Marxist, guys? Under a religious, guys, Satan will seek to extend his influence over the Christian world. This is what draws us in. This is what we're attracted to. This is what could even deceive the very elect were it possible. He will, it goes on in verse 42. He will stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Notice this. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. He's in the midst of this establishing a form of Christianity. Establishing this when what is it that troubles him? News. It's not some massive army. It's not somebody coming with a bigger gun. It's not somebody using the tactics that are revealed throughout Daniel chapter 11. It's somebody that shows up with some news. You see, what the, what the world needs from you and from me is the truth of who Jesus is. This is what will solve the crisis in the end. It's not telling them about how bad the king of the south is or about how bad the king of the north is. It's telling them how good Jesus Christ is, how much he loves you, that he laid down his life for you. News from the east and the north shall trouble him. You know, we look in uh, Isaiah 41.25 and Cyrus is sent as the anointed one by God himself to rescue God's people, Isaiah 41 tells us. And he's sent from the north and from the east. Do you remember Lucifer? He says, I'm going to ascend. I will place my seat on the congregation of the mount on the farthest sides of the north. The north and the east. The east is where the Mount of Olives is from the temple. The east and the north are where Jesus comes from, where God comes from. This is the picture that there's good news that's going to come from Jesus. And you and I, have the privilege of taking this to the world. We have the privilege of solving this back and forth, this craziness that's going on in the world by simply sharing the goodness of God, by simply sharing who Jesus is. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. He's going to get super upset by this, and he's going to go back towards the promised land, seeking to destroy those who are giving this good news. Welfare Ministry, page 137, says it this way, as religious aggression subverts the liberties of our nation, as, as a religious aggression, pushing people into a religious uh, box, subverts the liberties of our nation, those who would stand for freedom of conscience will be placed in unfavorable positions. He will go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And then notice this, verse 45, and he shall plant the tents of his palace. You remember what? God had the Israelites make in the wilderness 
by the glorious mountain? A tabernacle, a tent, so that he could dwell right with them. He said, I want to be king right in your midst. They go, the, the king of the north goes with his armies up to the glorious mountain and he pitches his tents in the midst of his armies. But notice where it is, between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. What does seas represent in Bible prophecy? People. You can look at Revelation 17 to see that. They represent people and multitudes and nations. You see what's going on here? There's the glorious holy mountain. Who would that represent? Jesus, it would represent those who are reflecting Jesus. It would represent God's people. And then there's the mass of society. There's people. And in between is where the king in the north is. Hang on, you're spreading this news and people are coming to Jesus. I got to put a stop to this. I'm coming in between. That's the goal of Satan, to be in the temple of God, to be worshipped as God. I'm coming in between the good news and humanity. Well, you know, unfortunately, we've seen a lot of craziness go on in the name of Christ over history. Um, recently, I was reading about a particular um, priest who writes about what was taking place in the, Indi- the West Indies as the indigenous people were being converted. And this is a painting of what they, an example of what would happen. But they were told to convert or else be dismembered. Lose your hand, lose your nose. And the priest who's writing about this, who later, he started off in this direction, but he later recanted of this and began to work against this type of persecution. Uh, Bartolomeu de las Casas, in his a short account of the destruction of the Indies, he said, the chief, at one point, one of these chiefs who is being told convert or experience this torture, without any further deliberation, told him he had no mind to go to heaven for fear of meeting with such cruel and wicked company, Christians as they were. I don't want to go to heaven. (laughs) Instead, he said, but would much rather choose to go to hell where he might be delivered from the troublesome sight of such kind of people. (laughs) This is a picture of the king of the north puts himself in between people and God to misrepresent what God is like. God doesn't use these type of uh, coercion and force and manipulation. But we find this in modern society. Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist who's written The God Delusion, that an institution guilty of inquisitions, that's where millions of people were, were killed by the church, protecting child rapists, homophobia and misogyny has moral authority, makes sense. Sarcastic remark, but maybe it's based upon a false version of Christianity. Maybe it's based upon some truth of what we need to tell the world is actually what he thinks is true about the church is actually false. Gwyneth Paltrow said it this way, religion is the cause of all the problems in the world. It causes war. More people have died because of religious conflict than any other. She needs to be told the good news about who God is. God's not like that. Christopher Hitchens, another uh, atheist, God loves you so much that he created hell to torture you forever just in case you don't love him back. You want to worship a God like that? He loves you so much. That if you don't worship him, he'll torture you unendingly, sustain you to writhe in pain for unending ages. This is a, a, we've got good news to tell to the world. That's not true. That's not who God is. The world needs to know this. News from the east and the north will trouble the king of the north. The king of the north won't handle this well. 
And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. And here's the good news, though. He shall come to his end, and no one will help him. The whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Every nation, tribe, tongue, and people is going to hear how good Jesus is. And in the end, he's going to go to battle against God's people, and suddenly his resources are going to be cut off. Suddenly he's going to be unable to go forward. This is pictured uh, in the book of Revelation, but we probably won't get time to get into that in detail today. The great controversy, remember, it said under a religious guise, uh, pretension of religion, Stepping into the place, looking like a savior, Satan will seek to extend his influence over the Christian world. We're going to skip through this really fast. Revelation 11 to 18 gives us another parallel of all of these things and unpacks it further and shows us how this involves what Revelation describes one of the beasts uh, getting, receiving a mortal wound. Uh, this is the king attacking uh, from the south attacking. You, see, you find God being mimicked by a threefold union of the sea beast, the earth beast, um, and the dragon who are imitating God. You find uh, him entering the glorious land by signs and wonders. That's the part we didn't look at in Second Thessalonians. It says that this man will exalt himself in the temple of God, and then he's going to perform signs and wonders. How in the world will all these people follow after a power like this? The, the, the easiest thing for an atheist to be turned into a Christian is for them simply to see a miracle. No longer do they believe in only naturalism because they've seen the supernatural. And they're unaware, unless we get the good news to them, of what direction to look when the supernatural shows up. Um, we'll skip through the rest of that, but a lot of parallels there to Revelation chapters 11 to 18. You can study those out for themselves, yourself. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings summarizes this whole idea of the difference. Remember, we had the statue in Daniel 2 that was made of metal, but it's the rock without, cut out without hands that smashes it. It's a different kind of kingdom. We have the four beasts in Daniel chapter 7 who are ferocious, who are crushing. And then it's the Son of Man and the books being opened and a, a crowd around him for the investigative judgment. You have this picture that in Daniel chapter 8 and 9, that there's the ram and it's fighting with the goat and then there's these, this little horn power that comes in. And then Daniel is given in Daniel chapter 9 the picture that the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. It's self-sacrificing love in opposition to all of the, the coercion, the force, the manipulation that has been used throughout history that will finally enable us to do what we sang about, crown him King of kings, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord forever and ever. When Christ does not drive, but draws men unto him, the only compulsion which he employs is the constraint of love. It's the good news about who he is that, that draws rather than compels. When the church begins to seek for the support of secular power, it is evident that she is devoid of the power of Christ, the constraint of divine love. We should vote for morality. We should vote for what is right. But we should not seek for the church to have any type of authority through secular power. Finding herself destitute of the power of love, she has reached out for the strong arm of the state to enforce her dogmas and execute her decrees. Here is the secret of all 
religious laws that have ever been enacted in the secret of all persecution from the days of Abel to our own time. Simply this, a lack of the love of God within the church. Did you catch that? When the church is lacking in the love of God, it seeks for the power of the state. So what do we need? We need to know that we're greatly beloved. As Daniel is told in Daniel chapter 10, over and over, and in Daniel chapter 9, you are greatly beloved, and this love is the good news that the world needs to hear. News from the east and the north shall trouble him. And Jesus summarized it like this. He said, because lawlessness, the lawless one will, will come, lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. People will become more and more selfish. But he who endures, endures in love to the end. He who continues to love even to the very end, even while everybody else is going crazy out there, will be saved. And this good news, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. It's news of who Jesus is. It's the good news that puts an end to this battle. And you and I have the privilege every day when we interact with people to tell people, God's not like what you thought. He is incredibly good. He's incredibly beautiful. The last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. You believe that? What the world really needs to know is what God is like, what his character of love is all about. This, my friends, this is the solution to everything that ails this world today. And then it goes on to say, God's people within their own character will reflect this grace to the world around them by the way that they live. So I want to close with this, this story. Uh, a friend of mine was on an airplane, a pastor that you may know, and as he was traveling on this airplane, he was reading a book. And as he was reading this book, he noticed that the guy next to him was looking over his shoulder. And as the guy was looking over his shoulder, he said, is that a book about God? And, and he, he said, you know what? I'm an atheist. And Ty looks over to him and says, I'm an atheist too. And the guy next to him says, then why are you reading that book? And he said, well, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. And this is in Ty's own word what he said. He said he's a super powerful being out there somewhere in the sky that rules over us with absolute control. Sound like Daniel 11 at all? Before we're even born, God decides who goes to he- gets to go to heaven and who's going to burn in hell forever. Of course, we have no say in the matter. It's all utter nonsense. I agree. How about you? That's some craziness right there. And we're supposed to love this tyrant. I don't even like him. I think liking someone has got to come before loving them. It's more like a monster than God. And so Ty told him, well, yeah, I'm an atheist too. All those things that you just described about God, those are true. That God does not exist. You're absolutely right. But then he said, but, but could, I, could I engage you for a second on this thought? What if the exact opposite of that God existed? What if the God who exists is, is actually perfectly good? 
What if the God who does, who does exist is nothing like popular opinion portrays God to be? What if God really is love in the strongest and most beautiful sense imaginable? What if God himself would lay down his life for you? Because he loves you more than his own existence. Friends, we have good news to share with the world. I encourage you to fix your eyes on Jesus, to focus on this good news that alone can finish this incredibly intense conflict that this world is in. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Because there's a whole lot of people out there. Yes, they're immersed in secularism. They're mis- they may be atheists. They may be filled with all these crazy beliefs. But could it be that they're running from a God who does not exist? And they need you to introduce them to the God who actually exists and who loves them more than his own existence. Let's invite you to bow your heads with me. And as you do, just to to ask God, first of all, God, is there anything in my own heart that keeps me from seeing you clearly, from loving you and recognizing your love for me? And then I want to invite you to, to, to ask God, is there anything I can do? Maybe there's some people in my, my life that I can picture they're, they're following the king of the south and, and they need some help. How can I give them a picture of who you are that will enable them to see the good news? Or maybe you can picture some people that are following the king of the south and you want to ask God, how can I help them see that God's not like that? Father, we pray that you give us specific ideas of how we can share good news with the world. Thank you that the whole earth will be filled with your glory, that people will come to know your loving character, and we want to be a part of that. Would you open our eyes to see how we can share this last message of mercy of the loving character of God with the whole world? Lord, would you help us to start living it out in our relationships? That we wouldn't have beastly characteristics of either the king or the, of the north or the king of the south in the way that we relate to our wives, the way that we, wife, the way that we relate to our, our husband, the way that we relate to our kids, our neighbors, our coworkers. Father, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can represent the God of love that you are, so that that good news just overflows out of our hearts because it's become a reality for us. Thank you for the covenant of of peace. Thank you for the prince of the covenant. Thank you for who you are and your faithfulness. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.